So God's Word says explicitly that you're not to uncover your father. And by taking your father's wife, you're uncovering your father, and there's sexual sin going on. It's sin outside of marriage, outside of the context that God placed marriage to be. And so in this letter, Paul writes to the fact that they put him out, they were obedient. They said, hey, we know it's not popular, but you can't fellowship with us in the church because you're living in open sin and you're unrepentant. And so they put him out so they would know that this sin separates you from God. And in a practical way, you could see that because it separates you from fellowship with other Christians. So then in the second book, Paul's writing to them. He says, hey, good job. You did it. That's hard. It's hard to put somebody outside of the church because you want everyone to feel welcome, but you also want them to flee sin. You want them to change because unless they change, they can't grow. And unless they change, God won't be seen in their lives. And so this thing that needed to happen, they did. And as a result, this man repented. But here's the problem. Many times God gets us to move in a direction. We do something in obedience. And then he says, okay, now turn around and do something else. They were supposed to let him back in the church because he had repented. See, many times we see people that are in sin and we call them out on it. And then when they repent, we still won't listen or take them back and forgive them. Forgiveness is a key piece because that restored him to fellowship. So Paul says, I want to encourage you, let him back in, lest he would be overly sorrowed and forsake the faith completely. He needs a practical touch from you guys of forgiveness now that he's repented. And then he wrote to enlist. We have explain, encourage, and enlist. He was enlisting their help. A year before this letter Paul was with the Corinthians and he said, hey, there's this need in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church is experiencing financial ruin. There's a famine going on and no one will give them jobs. So what are we going to do about this? We need to help them. They were a key piece in sending the gospel from Jerusalem to our churches here in the Gentile regions. And so some of the fruit that comes from that is the ministry, the, the money that comes into our churches. We've got an abundance why don't we take a portion of that? Why don't you pray and see what God would have you give? And we'll send some financial help back to them to be a practical blessing. And once you've done this, you'll fulfill this law that is kind of written on our hearts to give. God so loved the world that he gave. And so we so love the brethren that we also give at times when it's needed. And so Paul calls them to give. He's enlisting their financial help. Now, is he telling them to do it just because they, they should and because he said so? No. In the chapter that we studied last week in chapter 9, he says, no one should give out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of they want to. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul even said that. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels me to do what I do. It's what constrains me. I can't help but love other people out of an overflow of the love that he's shown me. And so he says, pray for these people, and as the Lord would lead, if he gives you the opportunity, give. That was it. That was the main purpose. And so he wrote this letter to explain to them his plans, his changes, his actions. He writes to them to encourage them. He writes to them to enlist their help. And fourth reason, we see as it turns the page in chapter 10 through 13 of this book, his tone changes. He gets pretty heavy-handed. 
Paul's been encouraging them. He's been uplifting them. And now he's going to do something that every parent knows needs to be done, but they also know it's very hard. I love my daughter. I want to bless her. But when she's disobedient, when she's rebellious in some way, when she's doing something that's unsafe, I also have to correct her because I love her. Because I love her and I don't want her to get hit by a car, I tell her no every time she runs towards the street. Because I love her and I care about her deeply, I tell her no when she disobeys her mom or I. I tell her no because I love her. Not because I want to be a bummer, not because I don't want her to have fun, but because I love her. And if I don't tell her no in some of those circumstances, I'm not really loving her. And so Paul, in the same way, he wrote this letter, the fourth E, to establish this church. And that word means to strengthen, to build up, not to tear down. But what happens is many times when someone corrects us or when we give correction, our, the, the question becomes by the person that's being corrected, they're like, you're just trying to hurt me. Well, Paul's not trying to do that. He explains to them, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. And the question becomes, when we're correcting, when Paul's correcting, when God's correcting us, do we receive it as something that is trying to hinder us or trying to help us? I read uh, this, this little comic strip. It was in my memories on Facebook from a few years back. And it was this little comic of this man running. And he goes, I'm tired of this fence being in my way. I'm going to jump over it. And there's a man standing right next to it who says, hey, that's not a fence. That's a barrier. And it was... Basically, it said the Ten Commandments on it. Oh, those things are just, they're, they're stopping me from enjoying life. And then the man jumps over, and the man standing next to it goes, that's a barrier to help you, to keep you from getting hurt. And then it shows the man who jumped over it falling off a cliff. And in the same way, God's correction is always trying to keep us from falling off a cliff. Or in that man's case, jumping off a cliff. Because if you jump over the commandments of God and you say, you know, these things aren't really necessary in my life, here's what you're doing. You're basically saying, I'd rather jump off a cliff than obey the Lord. I'd rather find death than be protected in safety and just trust the Lord. And so Paul, he has the heart of a father. And we're going to see that this week. He's going to give some correction. So in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, now I, Paul... Myself am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He starts out by explaining, I'm pleading with you. Paul doesn't have to ask anyone for anything. He's an apostle of the Lord, but what he does is he pleads with his audience. It's as if he were begging. Think about it. People that are in places of authority in this life, they do not beg. They say, I want you to do your job, and when you don't, and you consistently not do it, when you consistently don't do your job the way they ask you, what do they do? They say, you're out, you're gone. We can find somebody else that needs a job and is willing to do what we ask. But what Paul does is he says, I myself am begging with you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. How many of you have heard the phrase before, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I don't know where I've heard it, but I've heard many people say it. Jesus is meek and mild. He he lets me do what I want. He's my homeboy, whatever. Meekness does not mean weakness, okay? 
We hear the word meek and we think of a guy that is completely spineless. We think of somebody, maybe you don't, maybe you understand the actual definition, but the world hears the word meek and they go, wow, that guy is weak. But meekness is power under control. Meekness is a huge horse. Consider one of the Clydesdales. We see those, right? You ever stand next to a Clydesdale? Those things are taller than me. You say, well, that's no big deal. Those things are taller than tall people. The, the top of a Clydesdale horse makes tall people look miniature. And so picture that Clydesdale. What do you do with Clydesdales other than try not to get run over? Well, they hook them up to those big wagons. Budweiser does that, right? They hook them up to the big wagons and they pull the thing through parades. What else can they do with them? Well, many of them are used as plow horses. They'll hook up that chisel point plow behind it. Why do they do that? Because in order, for one thing, they didn't always have tractors. Young guys, they didn't always have tractors. Sometimes they had to hook up a donkey or a mule, or if you were very fortunate, you had a strong horse that you could hook up to that thing, and when he starts walking, there's no like peeling out. He's just like, and he's pulling that big plow through hard ground. Think about it around here. You ever try to plow around here? Richard Tedford did it at our house. There's rocks, there's shallow roots because we have such hard soil. But that horse hooked up to that plow, just all that power in one direction. But think about it. That horse at any point could say, no, I'm not going to work for you. I can go find grain wherever I need it. I don't have to do what you say. And you know what we would do if a horse started saying, hey, I don't want to do what you do? We would let him because what are we going to do? We're, we're not as strong as a horse. But what do we do? We train this horse from a young age to understand that we care about it. We feed it. We brush it. We take care of it. We spend time with it. We put a little bit in its mouth and we teach it that when you pull back on it, it's trying to get it to go backwards. And when you put that halter on the left side to the left, it, it goes to the right or vice versa on the right, goes left. And, and we teach it how to be under control. But if that horse were ever to decide, you know what, I don't want to do what you want to do, it could totally overpower us. Perfect picture of meekness is strength, unimaginable strength under control. Paul has the authority of God as an apostle to direct the churches, to correct the churches, to build them up, to discipline them, but he approaches with meekness, power unimaginable power under control. It's kind of like an explosion. You know, when you start your car, you turn the key, the ignition starts, it puts electric to the, to the spark plugs, and inside that cylinder, the cylinder inside your engine, it puts a little gasoline, a little air, a spark, and then the pressure increases with the piston. And you know what happens? An explosion. So when you're starting your car, there's lots of explosions going on. We think of it as just an engine running. But every time it goes pop, 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 it's gasoline exploding. Have you ever lit gasoline, like to start a fire? If you have, you probably were missing your eyebrows for a little while. Gasoline exploding makes a lot of power. But when you put it inside that cylinder and you contain it in one spot, what it does is it pushes that... Uh, it pushes that piston back down, turns the crankshaft, turns the transmission, turns your drive shaft, turns your tires, and you can do a burnout. You know, that's a lot 
that's going on in there, but it's all because that explosion is under control. And so in the same way, we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power inside of us, under control of these of the Spirit, we have much power to be used by God like that engine does to be able to turn those tires. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit coming upon them, he calls it the dunamos. And that's just a Greek word that means dynamite. God's power living in us. Unimaginable, unmeasurable power. Yet under the control of the Spirit, very useful, very practical. God wants to use you and I in meekness, and in gentleness of Christ. And so Paul, in the same way, having all authority, yet in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, he speaks to them, he begs of them, he pleads with them. He says, "...who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent I am bold toward you." He's saying this because they had told him, that there were these people that came behind him said, you know, Paul's kind of an interesting character, and we don't believe he's an apostle, and it's just because of this simple thing. When he's with us, he's really kind of, he's humble, he's lowly, but when he writes in these letters, he's, he's really bold and courageous. It's like he's not even the same guy. He's one thing here, and he's another thing here. Can we really trust him? Is he really somebody worth following? And so Paul's going to explain why he is that way. Verse 2, he says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. Paul, when he's writing and he's bold and he's making these corrections, he's not meaning it for everyone, although if they need it, he means it for them. He means it for those who are unruly and questioning his authority. He says, I mean it for some. And here's the some he's explaining who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. See, these men that are judging us and trying to discredit our ministry in front of you, they think that we walk according to our own dictates, our own decisions. They think we walk according to the flesh. Obviously, he's saying that we don't. We're under the power of the Spirit. We're following the will of God. And so, um, Paul's seeking to establish them by de-establishing those that would call to question his authority and the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, he says here, quoting them, I know you say that I'm bold when I'm not with you, and I'm kind of humble and lowly when I am, but here's the reason, I don't want to be bold when I'm with you. Because when I speak harsh words to you, when I correct you, I don't want it to break you. And if you've ever experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. But there are times that have happened where someone in our church or in another church in Parkland, where I've been called to go directly to someone and speak to them about an issue that's going on that everyone's aware about that they need correcting in. And because I'm a pastor, if I go and speak to them and I try to correct them, you know what happens is most of the time, because I'm bold with them, they will never come to the church again. Or if they do, they'll sit in the seats, they'll listen to me teach, and while I'm teaching, all they'll think is, he's talking directly to me right now. Well, the reality is, most of the time, if you ever feel like that, by the way, I felt that way when someone was teaching, it's the Holy Spirit trying to teach you something, it's not me, because I don't know what you're going through. Half the time, I'm, I'm getting taught while I'm learning this. If anything hits home with you while the Bible is being taught, realize that's the Holy Spirit. I don't read your email. I don't stalk you. 
I'm not outside your doors at night trying to hear if you're arguing with your spouse. I'm not doing any of that. I don't even have time to study half the time. I'm, I'm doing my own deal. I'm trying to work through my own warts, you know. And so the reality is if the, the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to you on certain things, that's just Him. That's what He does. The, the reality is most Sunday mornings, hopefully, what we pray is that each one of you, the God, that God would speak to you and correct you and encourage you in all the ways that you need while one person's teaching one thing. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He says, I don't want to be bold against you in confidence when I'm with you. I'd rather just enjoy your fellowship. I'd rather enjoy being around you. The letters that I write are for correction. They're out of necessity because there are some among you who are not being uh, disciplined in their walks. He says, they speak of us as though we walk according to the flesh. And so before I move on, I want to talk about this real quick because what they think and what they say about Paul is they think of us, Paul saying this, as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul had already written back in chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, this very thing. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So Paul's saying, I'm in Christ. I'm not walking according to the flesh, but I'm walking according to the Spirit, and there is some correction that needs to go on. So they say he's walking according to the Spirit, or the flesh, and he's not. And even though we still walk in this skin physically, Paul says back in today's chapter, though we walk in the flesh, verse 3, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning fleshly, they're not weapons that this world uses, but they are mighty in God. The Christian, when they battle, should no longer battle according to the flesh. How does the flesh battle? <coughs> Excuse me. Everybody loves a cough through a microphone, right? How does the Christian battle? How are we called to battle? Are we called to battle the way that the world battles? Are we to take our, our arguments with people to the, to the open street corners? Are we supposed to go to Jerry Springer and say, hey, work through this with me? I mean, think about it. But that's sometimes what we do. We may not go on Jerry Springer, but we will mouth each other to other people. We will try to deal with our issues the wrong way. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, if you have an issue with your brother, if he sins against you, you need to go to him individually. You need to try to work it through. And if that sinning brother or sister, talking about a Christian, will not be corrected by that particular instance, then at that point, then it's your job to take them or take with another person with you and go to them and try to correct them. And if they won't at that point, then it goes to the next level. It's to try and correct them by taking it to the church 
And if you take it to the pastor with someone else and there's witnesses and this thing needs to change and it doesn't change, then you take it before the church and you say, hey, look, this is what's going on. This person is claiming to be a follower of Jesus. They won't be corrected in this way. And so we're letting you know they're not walking with the Lord. We're going to have to put them out of fellowship if they do not repent. I don't know why I even started on that other than, you know, as far as walking according to the flesh or dealing with things according to the Spirit. The, the hope is that it never gets to that point because most issues that people have with each other are one-on-one thing. If you can go to them one-on-one, first of all, they won't expect that. They'll expect you to mouth them to the world. But if you'll go to them one-on-one and seek uh, some sort of counsel, God can heal that thing before it ever becomes way worse than it should have been and blown out of proportion. But our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. God is always trying to reconcile people to each other, and sometimes the walls just need to be torn down. And so what, what are the carnal weapons? Carnal weapons, uh, I wrote down a couple that I could think of. Worldly wisdom, worldly insight, Proverbs 3, cha- chapter, chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, six says, um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own insight. Sometimes we think we have more insight than God does, so we go based on that. Trust, not in, the, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge the Lord, and He will make your path straight. That's the idea. That's how we battle. Physical strength. We try to fight things with physical strength. We think, you know, if I'll just pop somebody in the mouth, then next thing you know, things will be fixed. But James says this, the wrath of man will not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man will not produce the righteousness of God. And I'm learning that currently because I like to go straight to the hiney whooping. With Lucy, when she is disobeying, I like to go straight to the hiney whooping. But I learned from Dana personally, sometimes I just need to wait a little bit. Count to 10. Give instruction. Give 10 seconds. See what happens. And you know what? She was right. 95% of the time, Ten seconds later, she's like, you know what? Dad hasn't said anything. He must have meant it. Okay. And then she does it. And I'm like, wow. And in that ten seconds, because I'm not patient. I know some of you guys are, but I'm not. I can pray for my daughter to learn to be obedient. Because ultimately with her, I'm, not, I'm training her. As she obeys me, she's learning to obey the Lord. And ultimately, I want to hand her off to the Lord to obey Him. When she gets to that realization, I've got a heavenly father. I I have to live to do his will. My dad's not always going to be there, but my heavenly father will. So I want to please him. And at that point, I can just say, hey, this is what we were always training you for. And is God going to whack her every time she messes up? Or is is he going to be patient with her? He's going to be patient with her. There's a time where patience is no longer there, and there's correction, and there's there's the, the hiney whooping comes. But she needs to learn that there is a time where you get a chance to make that decision on your own. And so God pulls down strongholds. So we, we try to do things with worldly wisdom, insight, and understanding. We try to do it with physical strength. We try to do it based on our appearance or strutting our stuff and claiming to everyone that we have godly authority. You know, we want to, hey, you have to do this because I'm so-and-so. Well, they don't care about that. We can't fight battles that way. Our identity is no longer in what our title is. It's no longer in how tall or short we are or or how strong we are. Our identity is in Christ, and He fights our battles. And if we'll let Him do it, 
we'll get the victory every time. And sometimes that'll mean that we'll go into a battle and we'll start praying for a thing and there'll be a war going on. But guess what? The battle will be won and we will be the one that will have lost because it was us that needed to change. You ever think about that? You ever get in a battle with somebody and you start arguing and the next thing you know, you realize you're the one in the wrong? It takes lots of prayer for the Lord to humble us and go, hey, you need to settle down. You need to change. And then guess what? As a result, their attitude towards you will change because you're really the offender here. So Paul is exercising this. He says that our weapons, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty. (laughs) We think that our weapons, the ones I just listed, are the best way to handle it. But God's weapons are mighty. They are strong. They are sure. They're weapons that will always work. And so here's what happens. Paul has written about this already. So turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, he lists the weapons of his warfare. As he's teaching them, here are some weapons that you can fight these spiritual battles with. And sometimes we've got to fight physical battles with these, these weapons. But we do need weapons. Think about it. Artillery. We need it. This life is a battle. And so he says there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, he says that a lot in his letters because he tends to go long-winded like me. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong. We like that, right? Especially us guys, we like to be strong. But what does he say? He says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We don't have any might that will produce anything godly. We need to be strong in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Most of the battles we get in, we're not really battling the person. We're battling the stronghold the enemy has on that person's life. Someone has a disagreement with you. Someone that you typically get along with all of a sudden is battling against you. Satan's trying to put a wedge in that relationship. And so we have to be very aware of that. Verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Even people that don't know the Lord, typically we're not really battling against them. We're battling against Satan who has control of them. And Satan wants to discourage them and leave them in darkness. And so he'll do anything he can. He says, But we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age. Spiritual warfare is what he's talking about. Against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. For every battle going on, there's a battle behind the scenes that's really taking place. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The idea of withstand means to bear up under the load. And having done all to stand... Stand, therefore, verse 14, having, and then he starts talking about this artillery that the Christian has been given, if we will only put it on. How do we battle? Paul's experiencing this. He's living this out in 2 Corinthians, but how do you and I battle against those who would come up to discredit, to speak unwell, to try to tear us down? He says this, notice that most of this artillery is actually defensive and not offensive. He says, having girded your waist with truth. What do we gird our waist with? We don't, we kind of tighten. We don't gird. 
We don't wear a girdle. Think about a girdle. It tightens up. You know, now they have like belly bands and stuff. They don't have the girdle anymore. But men, most of us wear belts. You know, we take that belt, we tighten it, we pull things together. We're held together by this belt of truth, and that's what holds us together. If we know the truth, it will set us free. So the belt of truth is what we gird ourselves together with. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. It, it protects us. The breastplate of righteousness, not our righteousness, but God's, we put it on. Having shod your feet or putting on your shoes with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This gospel of peace, the, what Jesus has done for us, is, is what we put on our feet. Because wherever we go, we have the gospel to, to carry us there. And above all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. When those fiery darts come at us, we can hunker down under this shield that's called faith. We trust that the Lord will protect us. And the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So we have this helmet. Think about it. You're in a bunker and you stick your head up to see what's going on. You better have that helmet on. You better be walking in salvation. God's going to deliver you. But if you don't have your helmet on, if you're not walking in salvation, what happens is that a pot shot can take you off and you're done. But if you keep on realizing that you're walking in salvation, that nothing can take you down, Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, because we didn't earn it. It's something God gave us. So put it on. Walk freely. When you're wearing a helmet, there's some confidence there. You stick your head up, you get a pot shot, it goes, tong, and then you're fine. I think of a Daffy Duck cartoon. That's why I made that little sound effect. Tong. And it always it went through his whole body and shook him. Just making sure you're still awake. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is our only offensive weapon. The Word of God is to be what we use to deal with our enemies. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness. He got baptized, and it says the Spirit of the Lord took him to the wilderness to be tempted for a time. He didn't eat anything for 40 days. He didn't, he didn't partake. And so the Lord sustained him in the wilderness during this time of testing. And Satan came and visited him three different ways, with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And while he was out there, he always responded to Satan and said, Get away from me! No, he quoted Scripture using the Word of God, the only powerful tool he had to deal with the enemy. I love that. You know, he said, turn that stone into bread. You don't even have to worry about being hungry anymore. You can do that. You're the Son of God. He goes, hey, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I have bread you don't know about, Satan. And then he says, hey, why don't you uh, go up to the top of the temple and jump off? The Psalms, you're going to quote Scripture, I can quote it too. The Psalms say that if you were to fall, that angels will protect you, lest you would even dash your foot against a stone. If you jump off that building, people will know that you're the Son of God. He said, hey, Scripture also says you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't tempt God. We don't need to tempt Him. Put Him to the test. You don't have to test God. I know that God will protect me. I'm not going to go out of my way to make sure He does it. And then the third way, he said, hey, go up to this tall mountain, 
See all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you now. You don't have to go to the cross. And what did Jesus say? He said, because he had said to him, he said, if you worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus said, you shall not worship anyone but God himself. Get, behind, get away from me, Satan. And it says that Satan left him. So what does James chapter 4 say? He says, resist the devil. Excuse me, no. He says, submit to God, then resist the devil, and then he will flee from you. So that's how we deal with our enemies. We have to first submit to the Lord. And so we continue on in verse 7. He says this. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider that, that this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for strengthening or building up, or some of your translations will say edification, and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. He says, these letters I've written to you, I've written them to you to encourage you and to build you up, not for your destruction. He says, I don't war the way that the rest of the world does. I know those leaders, the people that have come in and said, I'm not an apostle, that they've come to tear down the testimony that what I have. But what Paul says here is that, you know, even if you say you're Christ and you believe you're Christ, so am I. So why are we fighting is the question. But here's what they were saying about Paul, verse 10. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. What they were saying about Paul is if he's an apostle of God, he's kind of lame. You know, they, they said, you know, the, the leaders and the rulers that we have in our community, they're eloquent in their speech. They wear these great outfits. Their presence is just this one of glory. They're, some, they're a leader you would be proud of. And, and think about that. We, we kind of look at people and we judge them based on their appearance. You know, when he says that, that he was weak in presence at the beginning, it's talking about his, his appearance. We, we look at things from the exterior. Unfortunately, it's kind of how we're trained to use our eyes to judge people. Well, what Paul's saying is, hey, you can judge outwardly all you want, but that doesn't mean that what's going on out, inside matches the outside. And so Paul says that. He says, you know, you said that uh, weighty and powerful in his letters, but bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Think about this. This isn't a place where uh, the thing that they hold above everything is not so much uh, who you actually are, your character, but what you are per- perceived to be. Think about that. We live in a society that's kind of like that. You know all kinds of people that have a perception. They put off this persona and you're like, they're probably pretty solid people. And then you get to know them a little bit more and you're like, wow, seriously? That's what's going on? You know? And we see this all the time. Even in the church, unfortunately, you see these pastors that are on TV. And they give a blemish on the Lord because they'll have this presence and this ability to speak eloquently in these huge ministries And then what you find out years later is that what they were on the outside, you go visit their homes, and that's not really what was going on. They they got all this turmoil and destruction, and there's no unity, and there's and no no doubt, no home is perfect. I'm not saying that. 
but there's not even forgiveness and grace and, and all these things that should be in every Christian home. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are all fruits of the Spirit of God dwelling in a person. And so, let such a person, verse 11, consider this, that what we are in words by letters, when we are absent, such we will be also indeed when we are present. In other words, you are saying this about me, that I'm one thing with my words and I'm another in my presence. Here's the deal. When I come to you, the things that I've written about, it's come to Jesus time. There's going to be some correction. It's going to be like Jesus when he came to the temple, when he came to his people in Israel. He was broken over the fact that there were so many shepherds and yet so little sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And these people would come to the temple where God chose to make his presence known. And when they got there, they would go to make this offering and they'd have this offering to make. And, and the people in charge of the temple would say, no, that's not going to be good enough for God. You're going to have to throw that away. But I'll sell you. I've got, I just so happen to have here some, some sheep that are perfect for making sacrifices. Why don't you let me sell them to you? And they'd say, well, all right, you guys are in charge, so we'll do what you got to do. We want to worship the Lord. And then they would go, well, wait a minute, you got different money than we do. We need to make an exchange. And what it says is they had weighted scales. So they would make a dishonest exchange. And so the people that wanted to come worship the Lord were being robbed by the people that were supposed to help them worship the Lord. There was some correction that was needed, right? So what did Jesus come in? He came into the temple. He didn't give them like a pep talk, like, hey, you guys need to do better. You know, you've been a little bit dishonest here. Maybe you need to. No, he said, you guys know the word of the Lord. So I'm going to come in. And he made a, a whip. And he started whipping them and scaring them out of there. He even knocked over the tables of the money changers. It was a big insult to the money changers, but he didn't care what people thought because these people were hindering God's people from coming to worship. They were being robbed in the very temple where God's presence was to be known. There's a different standard for people that follow the Lord. There's a different standard for people who call themselves Christians. There needs to be correction. There needs to be discipline. There needs to be accountability. And so the Lord, through the pen of Paul, says here, the, don't worry, when I come, the words that I've said, I'm going to follow through on. And of course, they spoke unwell of him because Paul, he was short, he had a hooked nose, he had leaky eyes because one time he had almost been stoned to death and many believe that it was because of that because he had a disease. He had been to all these foreign countries and drank their water sources and gotten sick. And so Paul was not somebody that you'd look at and go, man, he's going to be our leader. You'd go, man, that, that little whiny dude needs to hit the road. That's what you would say. And I find comfort in this, okay? Because it's humbling every week to get up here and teach the Word and have people come and listen and, uh, and take advantage of that. And, and um, I was reading this this week, and there are many times where the enemy tries to discourage me from doing what I do because um, I'm not what I would consider even. I'm not what I would consider someone... Um, that could be used by the Lord. And, and what the Lord says is, I'm your father, and, and you're mine, and that's who you are. And you're not in this position because you're the tallest, <laughs> right? You're not in this position because you're an eloquent speaker, because you never mess up. 
You're not in this position for any other reason than I chose you. And that should be enough for you. And then I'm like, okay, Lord, I'll just keep doing it. And there's encouragement in that because Paul experienced the same thing and he wrote most of the New Testament. Well, at least almost half of it. And so how do we judge people's character? How do we judge their worth? How do we know if we can be used by the Lord or not? Do we look at ourselves like the world looks at us or do we look at ourselves like Jesus looks at us? Worthy. So verse 12, he says this, and we'll dispel some myths in the last few minutes. He says in verse 12, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. I've heard it said this way by Pastor Mike. He says, um, we, when we compare ourselves with ourselves, we fool ourselves. When we compare ourselves with other people that are around us, our peers, we fool ourselves. We see that happen in high schools. People are trying to start a trend or they want to be cool, and so they compare themselves to the guy that they think is cool. But guess what? Next year, it'll be a different guy. And then you'll have to buy all new clothes. You have to do your hair different. You'll have to say different phrases like, bro, and uh, whatever the phrase is now, like, hey, dude, how's it going? You know, like, there's all these trends. But it's because people compare themselves with themselves, and they want to be cool. They want to be uh, elite. They want to be noticed. But in, in trying to be different, have you ever noticed that everybody trying to be different ends up being the same? Everybody wants to be cool, everybody wants to stand out, everybody wants to go against the flow and be rebellious, but when you do that, you end up being like everyone else. And I heard someone say one time, if you want to be different, if you want to be rebellious, read your Bible. No one's doing that. That's not a cool trend. You want to go against the flow? Follow Jesus. Jesus' disciples were against the trends. They were cool. In the eyes of the world that says, you're cool if you're not like everyone else, follow Jesus. He says, we don't compare ourselves with ourselves because if we do that, we end up fooling ourselves into thinking we're something we're not. And everyone else knows it but you. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel in the first place of Jesus Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, here's what he says, as your faith is increased and you follow Jesus even more than you did at the first, he says, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. Our sphere of influence my sphere of influence right now is you all. It's people I work with. It's people in my family. But if they start following Jesus, they start following him closely and, and falling in love with who he is and what he wants to do in their lives, guess what? My influence is increased through you and the people that follow you. But ultimately, all of those people, if they will follow us as we follow Christ, then whose cause is really increased? the kingdom of God. If I will follow Jesus as much as depends upon me, if I will be obedient to what he's called me to do, guess what? Other people will be blessed. They'll start to follow Jesus. And as they start to follow Jesus, the people that they know will start to follow Jesus. And as they follow Jesus, it keeps going. 
And who gets the glory in that? Is it short, whiny, hook-nosed, leaky eye Paul? No. Is it the Corinthian church? Is it you and I get to benefit, that get to benefit from this letter? Is it us that gets the glory? Is it the people that hear us that get the glory? No. It all goes back to the same one. The one who paid it all so it could all be started in the first place. Jesus Christ. We are truly living to obey the Lord. We are truly living to follow His precepts. If we'll do what He gives us to do, guess what? God's glory will increase. And it says here in verse 16, here's what will happen. The gospel will be preached in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's fear of accomplishment. He says this, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he, it's not he who commends himself who is approved or uh, approved by God or right in the sight of the Lord, but it's whom the Lord commends. These people that came in to discredit Paul, they were commending them themselves. They're like, hey, we're apostles. We're going to come in here. We're going to help you. Paul's not really an apostle. Well, how do you know he's not an apostle? Well, we said so. Well, the Lord seems to be making him fruitful. And so there's all these questions, but Paul boils it down to this. It's not you who commend yourself to be approved, but it's you who the Lord commends. Let me ask you, in your sphere of influence, are you living to be commended by the Lord or are you continuing to say, I'm all right by my own standard? If you will live to please the Lord, if you'll ask him, Lord, am I pleasing you? And if you are, He'll get the glory and you'll be blessed. But if you're living to please man or your own opinion or someone else's opinion or your own set of standards, guess who's blessed? No one. And so Paul, dealing with this very real spiritual war, and he's, he's also trying to show them how to do battle. It doesn't matter what other people think about you. Paul didn't care what other people thought about him, but he still wanted to do what he was called to do, which was strengthen that church. Who are you called to strengthen? What does it take to stop you from doing that? Does it take man's opinion? Does it take people's uh, jokes or mocking? Do you stop doing what God's given you to do because someone mouths you? Do you fight with spiritual weapons or do you fight with carnal weapons? Do you hit someone in the mouth or do you do what Jesus did and pray for your enemies? It's, It's the question we all have to come to. But let me tell you this, if you will do it God's way, not only will they no longer be your enemies because you'll love them anyway, but some of them will become your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to correct these people who are unruly so that they will follow Christ. He doesn't just want to tear them down. He wants to build them up, and they are his real enemies. So let's pray.